Chapter Twenty of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Twenty. What I told the Acanthus Leaf. I was awakened by a strange feeling that the pearly lady's presence had fled before other and more tangible ones. The moon had set, and it still wanted a couple of hours to dawn. I lit my candle and slipped out of bed and into a big coat. Then I opened my door and listened. A murmur of voices seemed to come from below, and I crept downstairs, lantern in hand, and into the square stone-paved hall. The first thing I saw was a man in convict's dress bending over the hearth. With a startled exclamation he turned and the lighted match in his hand lit up his face. I shall never forget my surprise when I recognized William Penrose. William Penrose was the largest landowner thereabouts, and lived at Boscarn with his mother. Father and I had often stayed with them. The last time, shortly before father died, was when I was a long-legged creature of fifteen, and William a staid, important youth of twenty-two. Therefore he must now be twenty-eight, but he looked very much the same. He had been a neat, correct-looking boy, and such was the atmosphere of neatness and correctness he bore with him, that it made me for a moment forget the broad arrows decorating his person. One could picture him grown portly in a tweed knickerbocker suit at just the right stage of shabbiness and fawn-coloured spats, his fair moustache gone white and a trifle fierce, striding across stubble fields. I stood and stared at him, and he stared at me with his pale blue, rather prominent eyes. I, too, in peach-bloom pyjamas and a blanket coat, with my straight hair raining down over my shoulders, must have looked somewhat odd. Why, Will, Mr. Penrose, I said. Don't you remember me? I'm Vivian Lovell. Vivian Lovell? Remember you? Why, of course. Only, well, I didn't know anyone was living here, and I thought you must be a ghost. Here he glanced down at himself and broke into a laugh. And you, I suppose, must have thought I was fleeing from justice. But I must introduce you, and he turned to a shadowy form which I now saw for the first time sitting on the floor by the wall. I advanced my candle and saw what, to my first bewilderment, seemed to be the little pearl-coloured lady from the wall. There were the same wide eyes, though brown instead of grey, and small pathetic face, the same shimmer of satin gown. But then I saw that the hair arranged in little clinging ringlets like those in the picture was brown instead of flaxen, and there was that subtle air of modernity which always pervades the copy of antiquity. Miss Clarissa Lanine Miss Lovell, said William, who never forgot the courtesies of life. I had often heard of Clarissa Lenine, commonly called Kissa, the daughter of a neighbouring vicar. 
but whenever I had been at Boscarn, she had always been away at school. I was pleased to meet her at last, and said so. "'How do you do?' answered a forlorn voice, as a cold little hand slid into mine. "'Oh, what are we to do? Isn't it dreadful?' "'Well, you see,' said I, "'I don't know what it's all about yet.' "'Of course not. What an idiot I am!' cried William. "'It's this way.' I've been taking part in some beastly theatricals, and then there was a fancy dress dance after, and then I said I'd drive Miss Lenine and the doctor and his wife home in my dog-cart. It's all on my way. We dropped the other two all right, and then the mare elected to go lame, and we had to get out and walk. I thought I'd put the mare in the empty stable here for the night, and Kissa must needs slip on a rut and sprain her ankle. And I don't know what to do. It's two miles still to the vicarage, and three to my place. But now you're here, it's all right. You'll look after her while I go on and tell her people, and I can send over for the mare and her in the morning. Dear me, thought I. It's plain to see you two were practically brought up together, and haven't got over it yet. Aloud, I said, I'd better look at the ankle first in case it needs a doctor. You had better carry her up to my room. I'll lead the way. We processed solemnly upstairs, and there I made a cold-water compress for the ankle, which proved, although swollen and painful, to be merely strained. Then I accompanied William to the front door. He stood looking at me for a moment, still embarrassed by my attire, though he had forgotten his own. "'Do you mean to say you're all alone in this house?' he asked. "'Yes, there were no lodgings to be had. I'm posing to the Culvers. You know them, don't you?' You've let them a cottage. Oh, yes, I know them, he said, chuckling, as if the thought of them amused him. Jolly good of you to sit for them, he added. And already, in his tone, was a shade of disapproval. I was Viv Lovell, a friend of his mother's, with whom I had often stayed. Why should I be so much too kind as to pose for the Culvers? Oh, no, it's good of them, not me, I replied quickly. They pay me. I'm here as a professional model. That must be stopped, of course. You must come and stay with us, said William decidedly. A flush had actually risen to his face, and I could, metaphorically, have fallen on his neck and embraced him. I had so long been with people who thought of me as a matter of course, as a worker, and now I felt again my kinship with William Penrose and his kind. Dull, boring as I might find them for long at a time, as my father had before me, yet these were my people, not the Culvers of the world. As I refused his suggestion, I was aware of a glow of pleasure. My mother will call on you at once, said William, sticking his jaw out. 
I'm afraid I'm not very callable on, I answered. I only sleep here, you see. But I'll come and see her, if I may. Do, said William. She often talks of you and Mr. Lovell. I, I'm awfully sorry, about your father, I mean. I had an enormous admiration for him, you know. When I was a boy, I thought him the cleverest man I'd ever met, and still do, though I'm not a bit clever myself, you know. I'm awfully glad to have met you again. We shook hands, and he set off, a sinister-looking figure enough in his suggestive costume. And I went upstairs to kiss her. She had nearly finished undressing, so I brushed out her soft hair, the color of a dead leaf and tucked her up in bed, then folded with an odd feeling that it ought to be mine, the soft, pearly frock she had copied from that of my ancestress. But you, she protested, looking up at me with sleepy brown eyes, this is your bed. The excitement of meeting a convict and a damsel in distress has quite waked me up, I assured her. I couldn't sleep not if it was ever so. Shut your eyes at once. She did so, but opening them again, asked anxiously, Do you think William was very annoyed with me, about my ankle? He says women are always doing silly things like that, especially me. Of course he wasn't annoyed. It was just his anxiety about you made him seem so. Now go to sleep. I watched her for a little while, till I was sure she was sleeping soundly. A slight flush on her cheeks, her sweet, sturdy profile, with its delicately tilted little nose and round, rather prominent chin, pressed against the pillow. Then in the first grey of the dawning, I went out across the courtyard and round to the back of the house were standing out to one side were the ruins of the banqueting hall and chapel, both much older than the house itself, which only dated from the restoration. The clumps of ivy, over which a light breeze was sending ripples of movement, so that they seemed to be drawing quick breaths, showed dark against the pallor of the shattered roofless walls and slim pillars. A great white sow, wan grey in the dawnlight, a mere ghost pig, was lying among a rubble of fallen stones and nettles inside the chapel. I shot a pebble at her, and she lumbered angrily past me, snorting as she went. I climbed up what was left of the stairway in the banqueting hall, and crawling along the edge of the wall, sat down my legs dangling and one arm clasped for security round the pointed arch of the doorway. Away from me the hillside sloped to the valley bed. Among the brambles and gorse bushes pockets of water glimmered pearl-like. At the mouth of the valley, about a mile to the left, the dawn was kindling over the brightening sea. 
I was perched so high that the dark bosses of tree tops showed as islands above the golden mist that filled the valley in rolling clouds like smoke. The birds began to chirp, and from the hedge just below a yellowhammer sat bowing at me and uttering his run of melancholy notes. A rabbit, its dun fur matted into little points with dew, ran across the path. The cows, scrambling up from the places they had kept dry with their own bodies, tore at the long grass till such time as the farm lads should come and drive them to the milking. Sitting there, I remembered when father and I, long ago, had made a pilgrimage to Clonance, how he had shown me that the iron field gates were swung between carved pillars that had once graced the chapel, and how the windspar course of an old gable was built into the pigsties. If my grandfather had stuck to farming down west instead of going to races up-country, this would be mine now and yours after me, he had said. I dare say I shouldn't have stayed in it, but the rolling stone would have liked a parent wall to roll back to in its old age. As I thought of his words, I understood them far better than I had at the time, and I too felt some influences from the old place tugging at my heart. I was very happy sitting there, but there was more to it than that. It was the fact that this was my own place, where my own people had lived before me, that tingled through me like wine. That someone else was in legal possession was really neither here nor there. These stones could never be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone as they were of mine. Not for him would the pearly lady shimmer at the bend of the stairs, rustle in the passages, and fill the house with a presence as sweet and elusive as the scent of dried lavender. As I felt the call of the place, that imperative demand for actual stone and soil of one's own, which is a thing one can only understand if it is born in one, I vowed to buy Clonance back again some day. True, I had only about a pound in the world at the moment, but who could tell what might not happen? Before I swung myself down to go and meet the water-bearing Seneth, I laid my cheek against the curve of the cold arch and whispered my vow into the ear of the acanthus leaf on the capital. End of chapter 20